Welcome, welcome, welcome to Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. One, two, testicles, one, two. What's going on, all you beautiful bastards and all you beautiful people that have a father in your life? Welcome back to Chromatic Distortion. I'm your host, that mildly enchanting Corey Caesar. This is episode 38, I believe. Um, this was originally going to be a current events episode, but honestly, just wasn't enough. Uh, just wasn't enough interesting stories. The news, uh, the news feeds were uh, fluttered and just uh, saturated with uh, the Epstein murder and uh, or, or suicide, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> and uh, and some shootings. So I'm going to push that back. I'm going to push that back to next week. Um, I, will, I will discuss the Epstein situation a little bit um, in depth. Not real in depth, but for I'll spend 10, 15 minutes on it probably um, on that episode. So we'll, we'll do that next week. And I, and I, and I just saw so I just swapped the episode. It's basically what I was going to do. Um, and this week we are going to do something a little different. If you listen to the last week, you kind of already have an idea what this is going to be. Um, so today I'm going to be doing a reading of one of my favorite pieces of writing. Um, it, it's a pamphlet. It's a, a, a newsletter, whatever you want to call it. I believe it was written in the sixties, late sixties. Um, could be wrong on that. I'm just spitballing that. Um, and, and it's a piece by Murray Rothbard who was an American economist, historian, and a political theorist. Um, and, and this piece is entitled Anatomy of the State. Um, and, and I think this is an important piece, and I think it's very relative to, to uh, today, because um, as we move um, to, to a society that is becoming um, more and more dependent on government, um, and we have a society that is continually wanting to increase the size, power, and reach of our government um, into all aspects of our lives, and that's just expanding everything from social programs to the military to every everything. Um, it encompasses it all um, into all of our like all aspects of our lives. We're talking about now with this government. It, it's important to understand what the state actually is and how it actually operates. Like like what's its end goal? What's like what's its purpose? Um, and that's what this is. It's, it's a dissection of the state. And it's not necessarily the American state. It's a critical critique of the American um, government and state, obviously. But it, it, it's more about all the states. It's just the um, the underlinings of what the state actually is. Um, so so I'll, I'll try to put a link uh, in the show notes to um, a free version of this writing so you can read it yourself. Um and, and if, if it's not there, if you don't see that link, all you have to do is go to Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org. Um, search Anatomy of the State. You can pull it up right there. Um, you can pull the free version up right there. It's, it's free. Um, and the Mises Institute has a phenomenal collection of literature, guys. They have thousands of books, journal, journal articles, uh, and other writings. Uh, and like I said, they're all for free. 
um, like like legit books and audio books that you would pay real money for uh, for on Amazon. You can get for for free at the Mises dot uh, org. I think Anatomy of State is like five or six bucks for that paperback, and it's like twenty bucks for a hardback on Amazon right now. And I'm actually getting ready to read uh, uh, um, Mises's Socialism. Um, it's a book. It's six hundred pages, though. It's pretty long, and and it's that's an expensive. I'm getting it for free straight from Mises.org. So, um, if you have a desire to learn and understand a little bit more, like about real liberty and uh, what real free market economics is actually all about, um, n- not what we currently have in America. That's not free economics, um, and and nobody on the libertarian uh, movement. Um, thinks that we have a good system here, that, that, that this is free market and this is capitalism. It's not what we have. It's corporatism. It's crony, crony capitalism. It's um, it, it's corporate welfare. It's bullshit. It, it's the state. It's This is the state meddling in your business. This is why we have these rules. This is why we have these laws. That's why we bail out companies. If the state didn't interject, Amazon would take a $27 billion loss and they would go out of business. The government wouldn't give them your money to stay in business. And that would allow... Um, small businesses, people like you and me, who wanted to do that that service better and cheaper, and support maybe or or maybe even just run our business better, where where people would feel um, better about buying our product, then we'd be able to thrive. And multiple places like Amazon would be able to thrive. Instead, we allowed these massive corporations to take in massive amounts of debt and then write it off on their taxes, so they get to expand based on money they don't really have. And then we and then we bail them out, and we give them twenty seven billion dollars of free tax money because they took a loss. Now they did they they did research and development and they've helped out on some shit, but they took a loss and and uh, they should just go under. That's free economics. Free economics not giving them twenty seven billion dollars. That's not capitalism. So when you guys are bitching about capitalism, that ain't it. Trust me. Um, so check out Mises.org. It's it's really good. Um, yeah, so let's just let's just get into it because it's gonna take about forty five minutes. It'll take about forty five minutes for me to probably get through this. Forty five minutes to fifty five minutes, somewhere in somewhere in that range, depending on how fast I read. Um, and, and this is very interesting, and I and I'll do my best um, to pronounce all the words properly. Or and and there's a few names, um, but you know it's a uh, I'm not the I'm not the greatest linguist, and uh, and there's some hard words in this writing. So if I misspeak, I apologize. Um, but let's start this. So this is Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard. What the state is not. The state is almost universally considered an institution of social service. Some theorists venerate the state as the apotheosis of society. Others regard it as an amiable, though often inefficient, organization for achieving social ends. But almost all regard it as a necessary means for achieving the goals of mankind a means to be ranged against the private sector and often winning in competition of resources. With the rise of democracy, the identification of the state with society has been redoubled until it is common to hear sentiments expressed which violate virtually every tenet of reason and common sense, such as, we are the government. The useful collective term, we, has enabled an ideological camouflage to be thrown over the reality of political life. If we are the government, then anything the government does to an individual is not only just and untyrannical, but also voluntary and uh, on the part of the individual concerned. 
if the government has incurred a huge public debt, which must be paid by taxing one group for the benefit of another, this reality of burden is obscured by saying that we owe it to ourselves. If the government conscripts a man or throws him in jail for dissonant opinion, then he is doing it to himself, and therefore nothing untoward has occurred. Under this reasoning, any Jews murdered by the Nazi government were not murdered. Instead, they must have committed suicide, since they were the government which was democratically chosen, and therefore anything the government did to them was voluntary on their part. One would not think it necessary to belabor this point, and yet the overwhelming bulk of the people hold this fallacy to a greater or lesser degree. We must, therefore, emphasize that we are not the government. The government is not us. The government does not in any accurate sense represent the majority of the people. But even if it did, even if 70% of the people decided to murder the remaining 30%, this would still be murder and would not be voluntary suicide on the part of the slaughtered minority. No organicist metaphor, nor irrelevant bromide that we are part of one another must be permitted to obscure this basic fact. If then the state is not us, if it is not the human family getting together to decide mutual problems, if it is not a lodge meeting or a country club, what is it? Briefly, the state isn't that organization in society which attempts to maintain a monopoly of the use of force and violence in any given territorial area. In particular, it is the only organization in society that obtains its revenue not by voluntary contribution or payments for services rendered by uh, but by coercion. While other individuals or institutions obtain their income by production of goods and services and by the peaceful and voluntary sale of these goods and services to others, the state obtains its revenue by the use of compulsion, that is, by the use and threat of the jailhouse and the bayonet. Having used force and violence to obtain its revenue, the state generally goes on to regulate and dictate the other actions of its individual subjects. One would think that simple observation of all states throughout history and over the globe would be proof enough of this assertion. Or this assertion. But the, uh, the miasma of myth has lain so long over the state activity that elaboration is necessary. What the state is. Man is born naked into the world and needing to use his mind to learn how to take the resources given to him by nature and transform them, for example, by investment in capital, into shapes and forms and places where the resources can be used for the satisfaction of his wants and the advancement of his standard of living. The only way by which man can do this is by the use of his mind and energy to transform resources or production and to exchange these products for products created by others. Man has found that, through the process of voluntary mutual exchange, the, the productivity and hence the living standards of all participants in exchange may increase enormously. The only natural course for man to survive and to obtain wealth, therefore, is by using his mind and energy to engage in the production and exchange process. He does this first by finding natural resources, and then by transforming them, by mixing his labor with them, as Locke puts it to make them his individual property, and then by exchanging this property for the similarly obtained property of others. The social path dictated by the requirements of man's nature, therefore, is the path of property rights and the free market of gift and exchange of such rights. Through this path, 
men have learned how to avoid the jungle methods of fighting over scarce resources so that A can only require them at the expense of B, and instead to multiply those resources enormously in peaceful and harmonious production and exchange. The great German sociologist Franz Oppenheimer pointed out that there are two mutually exclusive ways for acquiring wealth. One, the above way of production and exchange, he called the economic process. The other way is uh, is simpler in that it does not require productivity. It is the way of seizure of another's goods or services by the use of force and violence. This is the method of one-sided confiscation, of theft of property of others. This is the method which Oppenheimer termed the political means to wealth. It should be clear that the peaceful use of reason and energy in production is the natural path for man the means for his survival and prosperity on this earth. It should be equally clear that the coercive, exploitative means is contrary to natural law. It is parasitic, for instead of adding to production, it subtracts from it. The political means siphons production off to a parasitic and destructive individual group. And this siphoning not only subtracts from the number of producing, but also lowers the producer's incentive for, uh, to produce beyond is his own subsistence. In the long run, the robber destroys his own subsistence by dwindling or eliminating the source of his own supply. But not only that, even in the short run, the predator is acting contrary to his own true nature as a man. We are now in a position to answer more fully the question, what is the state? The state, in the words of Oppenheimer, is the organization of the political means. It is the systemization of the predatory process over a given territory. For crime, at best, is sporadic and uncertain. The paratism is uh, ephemeral, and the coercive parasitic lifeline may be cut off at any time by the resistance of the victims. The state provides a legal, orderly, systematic channel for the predation of private property, It renders certain, secure, and relatively peaceful the lifeline of the parasitic caste in society. Albert J. Nock wrote vividly that the state claims and exercises the monopoly of crime. It forbids private murder, but it itself organizes murder on a colossal scale. It punishes private theft, but it itself lays unscrupulous hands on anything it wants, whether the property of citizen or of alien. Since production must always precede predation, the free market is anterior to the state. The state has never been created by a social contract. It has always been born in the conquest and exploitation. The classic uh, paradigm was a conquering tribe pausing in its time-honored method of looting and murdering a conquered tribe to realize that the time span of plunder would be longer and more secure and the situation more pleasant if the conquering tribe were allowed to live and produce, with the conquerors settling amongst them as rulers, exacting a steady annual tribute. One method of birth of a state may be illustrated as follows. In the hills of southern Ruritania, a bandit group manages to obtain physical control over the territory, and finally the bandit chieftain proclaims himself king of the sovereign and independent government of South Ruritania, 
And if he and his men have the force to maintain this rule for a while, lo and behold, a new state has joined the family of nations, and the former bandit leaders have been transformed into the lawful nobility of the realm. How the state preserves itself. Once a state has been established, the problem of the ruling group or caste is how to maintain their rule. While force is their modus operandi, their basic and long-run problem is ideological. For in order to continue in office, any government, not simply a democratic government, must have the support of the majority of its subjects. This support, it must be noted, need not be active enthusiasm. It may well be passive uh, resignation as if the inevitable law of nature. But support in the sense of acceptance of some sort it must be. Else the minority of the state rulers would eventually be outweighed by the active resistance of the majority of the public. Since predation must be supported out of the surplus of production, it is necessarily true that the class constituting the state, the full-time bureaucracy and nobility, must be a rather small minority in the land, although it may, of course, purchase allies among important groups in the population. Therefore, the chief task of the rulers is always to secure the active or resigned acceptance of the majority of the citizens. Of course, one method of securing support is through the creation of vested economic interests. Therefore, the king alone cannot rule. He must have a sizable group of followers who enjoy the prerequisites of his rule. For example, example, the members of the state apparatus, such as the full-time bureaucracy or the established nobility. But this still secures only a minority of eager supporters, and even the essential purchasing of support by subsidies and other groups of uh, and other grants of privilege still does not obtain the constant of the majority. For this essential acceptance, the majority must be persuaded by the ideology that their government is good, wise, and at least inevitable, and certainly better than any conceivable alternatives. Promoting this ideology among the people is a vital social task of the intellectuals, for the masses of men do not create their own ideas, or indeed think through these ideas independently. They follow passively the ideas adopted by, um, adopted and disseminated by the body of intellectuals. The intellectuals are, therefore, the opinion molders in society. And since it is precisely a molding of opinion that the state most desperately needs— the basis for age-old alliance between the state and the intellectuals becomes clear. It is evident that the state needs the intellectuals. It is not so evident why the intellectuals need the state. Put simply, that the state needs the intellectuals. It is not... I'm sorry. I started reading that again. Put simply, we may state that the intellectuals' livelihood in the free market is never too secure. For the intellectuals must depend on the values and choices of the masses of his fellow men and is precisely characteristic of the masses that they are generally uninterested in intellectual matters. The state, on the other hand, is willing to offer the intellectuals a secure and permanent birth in the state apparatus, and thus a secure income in the uh, panoply of prestige. For the intellectuals will be handsomely rewarded for their important function they perform for the state rulers, of which group they now become a part. The alliance between the state and the intellectuals was symbolized in the eager desire of professionals 
uh, of professors at the University of Berlin in the 19th century to form the intellectual bodyguard of the House of Hansa Lauren. In the present day, let us note the revealing comment of an eminent Marxist scholar concerning Professor Wittfogel's critical study of uh, ancient Orient despotism. Quote, The civilization uh, which Professor Witt, uh, Wittfogel is so bitterly attacking was one which could make poets and scholars into officials. Of innumerable examples, we may cite the recent development of the science of strategy in the service of government's main violence-wielding arm, the military. A venerable institution, furthermore, is the official or court historian dedicated to the purveying the ruler's views of their own and their predecessors' actions. Many and varied have been the arguments by which the state and its intellectuals have induced their subjects to support their rule. Basically, the standards of argument may be summed up as follows. A. The state rulers are great and wise men. They rule by divine right. They are the aristocracy uh, uh, of men. They are the scientific experts, much greater and wiser than the good, but rather simple subjects. And B. Rule by the extent government is inevitable, absolutely necessary far better than any indescribable evils that would ensue upon its downfall. The union of church and state was one of the oldest and most successful of these ideological devices. The ruler was either anointed by God, or, in the case of the absolute rule of many oriental uh, despotisms, was himself God. Hence, any resistance to his rule would be blasphemy. The state's um, priestcraft performed the basic intellectual functions of obtaining popular support and even worship of their rulers. Another successful device was to instill fear of any alternative system of rule or non-rule. The present rulers, it was maintained, supply the citizens an essential service for which they should be most grateful, protection against sporadic criminals and, mar and marauders. For the state... To preserve its own monopoly of predation, did indeed see to it that private and unsystematic crime was kept to a minimum. The state has always been jealous of its own preserve. Especially has the state been successful in recent centuries in instilling fear of other state rulers. Since the land area of the globe has been parceled out amongst particular states, one of the basic doctrines of the state was to identify itself with the territory it governed. Since most men tend to love their homeland, the identification of that land and its people with the state was a means of making natural patriotism work to the state's advantage. If Ruritania was being attacked by Waldavia, the first task of the state was its intellectuals, I'm sorry, of its intellectuals, was to convince the people of Ruritania that the attack was really upon them and not simply upon the ruling caste. In this way, a war between rulers was converted into a war between peoples, with each people coming to the defense of its rulers in an erroneous belief that the rulers were defending them. This device of nationalism has only been successful in Western civilizations in recent centuries. It was not too long ago that the mass of subjects regarded wars as irrelevant battles between various sets of nobles. 
Many and subtle are the ideological weapons that the state has wielded through the centuries. One excellent weapon has been tradition. The longer that the rule of the state has been able to preserve itself, the more powerful this weapon. For then, the X dynasty, or the Y state, has the seemingly uh, seeming weight of centuries of tradition behind it. Worship of one's ancestors, then, becomes a none-too-subtle means of worship of one's ancient rulers. The greatest danger of the state is independent intellectual criticism. There is no better way to stifle uh, that criticism than to attack and isolate voice. Any raiser of new doubts as a profane violator of the wisdom of the ancestors. Another potent ideological force is to um, um, deprecate the individual and exalt the collectivity of society. For since any given rule implies majority acceptance, any ideological danger to that rule can only start from one or a few independently thinking individuals. The new idea, much less the new critical idea, must need to begin as a small minority opinion. Therefore, the state must nip the view in the bud by ridiculing any view that defies the opinions of the mass. Listen only to your brothers, or adjust to society, thus become ideological weapons for crushing individual dissent. By such measures, the masses will never learn of, non-existent, uh, of the non-existence of their emperor's clothes. All government can see in an original idea's potential change, and hence an invasion of its, um, of its prerogatives. The most dangerous man to any government is the man who is able to think things out for himself without regard to the prevailing superstitions and taboos. Almost inevitably, he comes to the conclusion that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable. And so, if he is romantic, he tries to change it. And even if he is not romantic personally, he is very apt to spread uh, discontent among those who are. It is also important for the state to make its rule seem inevitable, even if its reign is disliked. It will then be met with passive resignation, as witness the familiar coupling of death and taxes. One method is to induce uh, historiographical determination, uh, I'm sorry, determinism, as opposed to individual freedom of will. If the X dynasty rules us, this is because the, uh, because the uh, inexo- in- inexo- inexorable laws of history or the divine will or the absolute or the material productive forces have so decreed and nothing any puny individuals may do can change this inevitable decree. It is also important for the state to... Uh, uh, in, inculcate uh, its subjects in aversion to any conspiracy theory of history. For a search for conspiracies means a search for motives and an attribution of responsibility for the historical misdeeds. If, however, any tyranny imposed by the state or venality or aggressive war was caused not by the state rulers, but by mysterious and arcane social force, uh, social forces, or by the imperfect state of the world, uh, the world, or if in some way everyone was responsible, then there is no point to the people uh, becoming indignant or rising up against such misdeeds. Furthermore, an attack on conspiracy theories 
means that the subjects will become more gullible in believing the general welfare reasons that are always put forth by the state for uh, engaging in any of these despotic actions. A conspiracy theory can unsettle the system by causing the public to doubt the state's ideological propaganda. And in case you missed it, just real quick off topic, or on topic but off the story here, um, the writing, YouTube has already started pulling conspiracy theory videos. I think we did. We might have done a, a free uh, a chromatic distortion free speech watch on that. I don't remember. And also, just later or earlier this month, the FBI released uh, documents claiming that conspiracy theories are now a domestic terrorism threat. So there you go, guys. Here's your government as you're giving it more control and it's seizing more control and more money over you and everything over you. It's already tar- it's already starting its conspiracy theories, putting putting it down. Don't talk against our narrative. You can't talk against us. You can't you can't say anything um, against us. We're gonna pull it. And actually, you might be a domestic terrorism now. You might be a terrorist for it. You you say nine eleven uh, was a government inside job terrorist. There you go. That's the that's that's the America you want to live in, guys. That's the world you want to live in. Um. All right. Back to back to the story. And in any. Uh, uh, another tried and true method for bending subjects to the state's will is inducing guilt. Any increase in private well-being can be attacked as un, uh, unconscionable greed, materialism, or excess affluence. Profit-making can be attacked as exploitation and usury. Mutually beneficial exchanges denounced as selfishness and somehow with the conclusion always being drawn that more resources should be siphoned from the private to the public sector. The induced guilt makes the public more ready to do just that. For while individual persons tend to indulge in selfish greed, the failure of the state rulers to engage in exchanges is supposed to signify their devotion to higher and noble causes, parasitic predation being apparently morally and uh, aesthetically lofty as compared to peaceful and productive work. In the present more secular age, the divine right of the state has been supplemented by the uh, invocation of a new god, science. And I love science. State rule is not proclaimed as being ultra-scientific. I'm sorry, is now proclaimed as being ultra-scientific, as constituting planning by experts. But while reason is invoked more than in previous centuries, this is not the true reason for the individual and his exercise of free will. It is still collectivist and determinist, and determinist, still implying holistic aggregates and coercive manipulation of passive subjects by their rulers. The increasing use of scientific jargon has permitted the state's intellectuals to weave obscurantist uh, apologia for state rule that they have only met with derision by the populace of a simpler age. A robber who justified his theft by saying that he really helped his victims by his spending giving a boost to retail trade would find few coverts. I'm sorry, converts. But when this theory is clothed in Keynesian equations and impressive references to the multiplier effect, it unfortunately carries more conviction. And so the assault on common sense proceeds, each age performing the task in its own ways. 
basically, uh, uh, thus ideological support being vital to the state. It must unceasingly try to impress the public with its legitimacy to distinguish its activities from those of mere bandits. So basically what that's saying is, real quick, just because the government comes up and steals that money from you, even if they're saying they're giving it to someone else for, you know, to better themselves, still theft. If I walked up to you and took $10 out of your pocket and say, hey, I'm going to go give it to Joe over here, though, because he needs $10, you would still say I stole from you. I still aggressed on you. So, so what makes the government not a thief? Just because you vote for someone that takes something from someone doesn't make it morally correct. You're still a thief. Take that one, you moral fucking guys. Um, the, uh, the unremitting determination of its assaults on common sense is no accident. For as McKinkin uh, vividly maintained, the average man, whatever his errors otherwise, at least sees clearly that the government is somehow lying outside him and outside the gen- generality of his fellow men, that it is a separate, independent, and hostile power, only partly under his control and capable of doing him great harm. It is, is it a fact of no significance that robbing the government is everywhere regarded as a crime of less magnitude than robbing an individual or even a corporation? What lies behind all this, I believe, is a deep sense of the fundamental antagonism between the government and the people it governs. It is apprehended not as a committee of citizens chosen to carry on the communal business of the whole population, but as a separate and autonomous corporation, mainly devoted to exploiting the population for the benefit of its own members. When a private citizen is robbed, a worthy man is deprived of the fruits of his industry and and thrift. When the government is robbed, the worst that happens is that a certain rogues of loafer, uh, and loafers have less money to play with than they had before. The notion that they have earned that money is never entertained. To the most sensible men, it would seem ludicrous. How the state transcends its limits. As Bertrand de Jovenel has sagely pointed out, through the centuries men have formed concepts designed to check the, and limit the exercise of state rule, and one after another, the state, using its intellectual allies, has been able to transform these concepts into intellectual rubber stamps of legitimacy and virtue to attach to its decrees and actions. Originally, in Western Europe, the concept of divine sovereignty held that the kings may rule only according to divine law. The kings turned this concept into a rubber stamp of divine approval for any of the king's actions. The concept of parliamentary democracy began as a popular check upon absolute monar- monar- monarchical rule. It ended with parliament being the essential part of the state, and its every act totally sovereign. As Juvenel concludes, many writers on theories of sovereignty have worked out one of these re- uh, um, worked out one of these restrictive devices, but in the end, every single such theory has sooner or later lost its original purpose and come to act merely as a springboard to power by providing it with it uh, by providing it with the powerful aid of the invisible sovereign with, with with whom it could in time successfully identify itself. Similarly, with more specific doctrines, 
the natural rights of the individual enshrined in John Locke's in the bill, uh, John Locke in the Bill of Rights, became a status right to a job. Autilitarianism turned from arguments for liberty to arguments against resisting states' invasions of liberty, and so on. Certainly the most ambitious attempt to impose limits on the state has been the Bill of Rights and other restricted parts of the American Constitution, in which written limits on government became the fundamental law to be interpreted by a judiciary supposedly independent uh, of that of other branches of the government. All Americans are familiar with the process by which the construction of the limits in the Constitution has been exorably broadened over the last century. But few have taken... Uh, but few have been as keen as Professor Charles Black to see that the state has, in the process, largely transformed judicial review itself into a, uh, itself from a limiting device to yet another instrument in furnishing ideological legitimacy to the government's actions. For in judicial decree of uh, for if a judicial decree of unconstitutional is a mighty check to government power an implicit or explicit verdict of constitutional is a mighty weapon for fostering public acceptance of ever greater government power. Professor Black begin, uh, begins his analysis by pointing out the crucial necessity of legitimacy for any government to endure. This, legitima uh, this legitimation signifying basic majority acceptance of the government and its actions. Acceptance of legitimacy become a particularly problem in a country such as the United States, where submissive limitations are built into the theory on which the government rests. What is needed as black is a means by which the government can assure the public that its increasing powers are, indeed, constitutional. And this, he concludes, has been the major historic function of judicial review. Let black illustrate the problem. The supreme risk to the government is that of uh, disaffection and feeling of outrage widely disseminated throughout the population and loss of moral authority by the government as such, however long it may be propped up by forces of inertia or lack of the appealing and immediate available, uh, available alternatives. Almost everybody living under a government of limited powers must sooner or later be subjected to some governmental action which as a matter of private opinion he regards as outside the power of government or possibly forbidden to government. A man is drafted, though he finds nothing in the Constitution about being drafted. A farmer is told how much wheat he can raise. He believes, and he discovers that some respectable lawyers believe with him, that the government has no more right to tell him how much wheat he can grow than he has to tell his daughter whom she can marry. A man goes to the federal penitentiary for saying what he wants to, and he paces his cell reciting, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. A, business is, a businessman is told what he can ask and must ask for buttermilk. The danger is real enough that each of these people, and who is not of their number, will confront the concept of governmental limitations with the reality, as he sees it, of the flagrant overstepping of actual limits and draw the obvious conclusion as to the status of his government with the respect to legitimacy. 
The danger is averted by the states propounding the doctrine that one agencies must have the ultimate decision on constitutionality and that uh, this agency, in the last analysis, must be part of the federal government. Again, according to Black, the prime and most necessary function of the Supreme Court has been that of validation, not that of invalidation. What a government of limited powers needs at the beginning and forever is some means of, uh, some means of satisfying the people that it has taken all steps humanly possible to stay within its powers. This is the condition of its legitimacy, and its legitimacy in the long run is the condition of its life. And the court, throughout its history, has acted as the legitimation of the government. For while the seemingly independence of the federal judiciary has played a vital part in making actions a virtual holy right for the bulk of the people, it is also an ever true that, judi- that the judiciary is part and parcel of the government apparatus and appointed by the executive and legislative branches. Black admits that this means that the state has set itself up as the judge in its own cause, thus violating the basic judicial principle for aiming uh, at just decisions. He brusquely denies the possibility of any alternatives. To Black, this solution while paradoxical, is literally self-evident. The final power of the state must stop where the law stops it. And who shall set the limit? And who shall enforce the stopping against the mightiest power? Why, the state itself, of course, through its judges and its laws. Who control the temperate? Who teaches the wise? And, the, and, and where the questions concern governmental power in a sovereign nation, it is not possible to select an, an umpire who is outside government. Every national government, so long as it is a government, must have the final say in its own power. Black adds, The problem, then, is to devise such governmental means of deciding it uh, as will, hopefully, reduce to a tolerable minimum the intensity of the objection that government is judging its own cause. Having done this, you can only hope that uh, this objection, through theoretically um, still tenable, will practically lose enough of its force that the uh, legitimating work of the deciding institution can win acceptance. In the last analysis, Black finds the achievement of of justice and legitimacy from the state's perpetual judging of its own cause as something of a miracle. Applying his theses to the famous conflict between the Supreme Court and the New Deal, Professor Black um, keenly chides his fellow pro-New Deal colleagues for their short-sightedness in denouncing judicial obstruction. The standard version of the story of the New Deal in the court, uh, though accurate in its way, displaces the emphasis it concentrates on the difficulties. It almost forgets how the whole thing turned out. The upshot of the matter was, and this is what I like to emphasize, that after some 24 months of balking, the Supreme Court, without a single change in the law of its composition, or indeed in its actual manning, placed the affirmative stamp of legitimacy on the New Deal and on the whole new conception of the government of America. In this way, 
the Supreme Court was able to put the quietus on the large body of Americans who had had strong constitutional objections to the New Deal. Quoting Black, Of course not everyone was satisfied. The Bonnie Prince Charlie of constitutionality com- uh, commanded laissez-faire still stirs the hearts of a few zealots in the highlands of um, choleric unreality. But there is no longer any significant or dangerous public doubt as to the constitutional power of Congress to deal as it does with the national economy. We had no means, other than the Supreme Court, for imparting legitimacy to the New Deal. As Black recognized, one major political theorist who uh, recognized, and largely in advance, the glaring loophole in the constitutional limit on the government of, of placing the ultimate interpreting power on the Supreme Court was John C. Calhoun. Calhoun was not content with the miracle, but instead proceeded to the profound analysis of the constitutional problem. In his disquisition, Calhoun demonstrated the inherent tendency of the state to break through the limits of such a constitution. Quoting Calhoun, A written constitutionally certain uh, certainly has many and considerable advantages, but it is a great mistake to suppose that the mere insertion of provisions to restrict and limit the power of the government without investing those who, uh, for whose protection they are inserted with the means of enforcing their observance uh, will be sufficient to prevent the major and dominant party from abusing its powers. Being the party in possession of the government, they will, from the same constitution of man, which makes government nece- uh, necessary to protect, uh, protect society, be in favor of powers granted by the constitution and opposed to the restrictions uh, intended to limit it. The minor or weaker party, on the contrary, would take the opposite direction and regard them, um, uh, the restrictions, as essential to the protection against the dominant party. But where there are no means by which they could compel the majority party to observe the restrictions, the only resort left to them would be a strict construction of the Constitution. To this, the major party would oppose a liberal construction. It would be construction against construction. The one to contract and the other to enlarge the powers of the government to the utmost. But of what possible avail could the strict construction of the uh, minor party be against the liberal construction of the majority? When the one who... Uh, when when the one would have all the power of the government to carry its construction into effect and the other be deprived of all means enforcing of the enforcing of its construction. In a contest so unequal, the results would not be doubtful. The party in favor of restrictions would be overpowered. The end of the contest would be the subversion of the Constitution. The restrictions would be ultimately be annulled and the government be converted into one of unlimited powers. One of the few political scientists who appreciated Calhoun's analysis of the Constitution was Professor J. Allen Smith. Smith noted that the Constitution was designed with checks and balances to limit any one governmental power, and yet has been developed, uh, and yet had then developed a Supreme Court with the monopoly of ultimately interpreting power. If the federal government was created to check invasions of individual liberty by the separate states, who was to check the federal power? Smith maintained that implicit, uh, that implicit in the checks and balances idea of the Constitution was the, concomitant, uh, the concomitant, 
view that no one branch of government may be conceded that ultimate power of interpretation. It was assumed by the people that the new government could not be permitted to determine the limits of its own authority, since this would make it and the Constitution and it make it and not the Constitution supreme. Smith writes, It was obvious that where a provision of the Constitution was designed to limit powers of the government organ, it could be effectively nullified if its interpretation and enforcement are left to the authorities as it, as it designed to restrain. Clearly, common sense would require that no organ of the government should be able to determine its own powers. Clearly, common sense and miracles dictate very different views of government. The solution advanced by Calhoun and seconded in the century by such writers as Smith was, of course, the famous doctrine of the concurrent majority. If any substantial minority interest in the country, specifically a state government, believed that the federal government was exceeding its powers and encroaching on, the, on that minority, the minority would have the right to veto this exercise of power as unconstitutional. This is why we have the Electoral College, guys, so that states have power, just in case you were wondering. Applied to state governments, though, this theory implied the right of nullification of a federal law of ruling within its state's jurisdiction. In theory, the ensuing constitutional system would assure that the federal government check any state's invasion of individual rights, while the states would check excessive federal power over the individual. And yet, while limitations would undoubtedly be more effective than at present, there are many difficulties and problems in the Calhoun solution. If indeed a subordinate interest should rightfully have a veto over matters concerning it, then why stop with the state? Why not place veto power in, in counties, cities, and wards? Furthermore, interests are not only sectional, they are also occupational, social, and so forth. What of bakers or taxi drivers or any other occupation? Should they not be permitted to veto power over their own lives? This brings us to the important point that the nullification theory confines its checks to the agencies of government itself. Let us not forget that the federal and state governments and their respective branches are still states. Excuse me. Are still guided by their own state interest rather than the interest of the private citizen. What is to prevent the Calhoun system from working in reverse, with states tyranny, uh, um, having tyranny over their citizens and only vetoing the federal government when it tries to intervene to stop that state's tyranny, or for the states to acquiesce in federal tyranny? What is to prevent federal and state governments from forming mutually profitable alliances for the joint exploitation of the citizenry? The citizenry? And even if the private occupational groupings were to be given some form of functional representation in government, what is to prevent them from using the state to gain subsidies and other special privileges from themselves, uh, for themselves, or from imposing compulsory cartels of their own members? In short, Calhoun does not push his path-breaking theory on concurrence far enough. He does not push it down to the individual himself. If the individual, after all, is the one whose rights are to be protected, then a consistent theory of concurrence would imply veto power by every individual. 
that is some form of uh, unit unanimity principle. When Calhoun wrote that it should be impossible to put or to keep the government in action without the concurrent consent of all, he was perhaps unwittingly implying such a conclusion. But such speculation begins to take us away from our subject. For down this path lie political systems which could hardly be called states at all. For one thing, just as the right of nullification for a state uh, logically implies its right of succession, so a right of individual nullification would imply the right of any individual to succeed from the state under which he lives. Thus the state has invariably shown a striking talent for the expansion of its powers beyond any limits that might be imposed upon it. Since the state necessarily lives by the compulsory confiscation of private capital, and since its expansion necessarily involves ever greater uh, incursions on private individuals and private enterprise, you must assert that the state is profoundly and inherently anti-capitalist. In a sense, our position is to revert is the reverse of the Marxist dictum that the state is the executive committee of the ruling class in the present day, so supposedly the capitalist. Instead, the state, the organizations of the political means, constitutes and is the source of the ruling class, rather ruling caste, and is uh, in permanent opposition to generally uh, private capital. We may, therefore, say with De Juvenal, only those who know nothing of any time but their own, who are completely in the dark as to the manner of power behaving through, uh, through thousands of years, would regard these proceedings, such as nationalization, the income tax, and so forth, as the fruit of a particular set of doctrines. They are, in fact, the normal manifestations of power and differ not at all in the nature of uh, um, not at all in their nature from Henry VIII's uh, confiscation of the monasteries. The same principle is at work. The hunger for authority, the thirst for resources, and in all of these operations, the same characteristics are present, including the rapid elevation of the dividers of the spoils. Whether it is socialist or whether it is not, power must always be at war with the capitalist authorities and despoil the capitalists of their accumulated wealth. In doing so, it obeys the laws of its nature. What the state fears. What the state fears above all, of course, is any fundamental threat to its own power and its own existence. The death of a state can come about in two major ways. A, through conquest by another state. Or B, through revolutionary overthrow by its own subjects, in short, by war revolution. War and revolution, as the two basic threats, inv in invariably arouse in the state rulers their maximum efforts and maximum propaganda among the people. As stated above, any way must always be used to mobilize the people to come to the state's defense in the belief that they are defending themselves. The fallacy of the idea becomes evident when conscription, when conscription is wielded against those who refuse to defend themselves and are, therefore, forced in the jo into joining the state's military band. Needless to add, no defense is permitted them against the act of their own state. In war, state powers push to the ultimate, and under the slogan of defense and emergency, 
it can impose a tyranny upon the public such as might be openly uh, resisted in time of peace. See the Patriot Act. War that provides many benefits to the state, and indeed every modern war, has brought to the warring peoples a permanent legacy of increased state burdens upon society. War, moreover, provides to a state tempting opportunities for conquest of land areas over which it may exercise its monopoly of force. Randolph Bourne was certainly correct when he wrote that war is the health of the state, but to any particular state, a war uh, may spell either health or grave injury. We may test this hypothesis that the state is largely interested in protecting itself rather than its subjects by asking, which category of crimes does the state pursue and punish most intensely? Those against private citizens or those against itself? The gravest crimes in the state's lexicon are amongst invariably non-invasions of private persons or property, but dangerous to its own contentment. For example, treason. Desertion of a soldier to the enemy, failure to register for the draft, subversion or subversive conspiracy, assassination of rulers and such economic crimes against the state as counterfeiting its money or evasion of its income tax. Or compared to the degree of zeal uh, devoted to pursuing the man who assaults a policeman with the attention that the state pays to the assault of the ordinary citizen, yet curios- curiously, the state openly assigns priority to its own defense against the public strikes f- few people as inconsistent with its presumed uh, uh, raison d'etre. As Mencken puts it, it is uh, in imitable fashion, this gang, the exploiters constituting the government, is well nigh immune to punishment. Its worst extortions, even when they are badly for private profit, carry no certain penalties under our laws. Since the first days of the Republic, less than a few dozen of its members have been impeached, and only a few obscure understrappers have ever been put into prison. The number of men sitting in Atlanta and Leavenworth for revolting against the extortions of the government is always ten times as great as the number of government officials condemned for oppressing the taxpayers to their own gain. How states relate to one another. Since the territory territorial area of the earth is divided among among different states, interstate relations must occupy much of the state's time and energy. The natural tendency of the state is to expand its power, and externally such expansion takes place by conquest of territorial area. Unless a territory is stateless or uninhabited, any such expansions involves inherent conflict of interest between one set of state's rulers and another. Only one set of rulers can obtain a monopoly of coercion over any given territorial area at any one time. Complete power over a territory by state X can only be attained by the expulsion of state Y. War, while risky, will be an ever-present tendency of states, punctuated by periods of peace and by shifting alliances and coalitions between states. We have seen that the eternal or domestic attempt to limit the state in the 17th through 19th centuries, reached its most notable form in the constitutionalism. Its external or foreign affairs counterpart was the development of international law, especially such forms uh, as the laws of war and neutrals rights. Parts of international law were originally um, purely private, 
growing out of the need of merchants and traders everywhere to protect their property and adjudicate disputes. Examples are in uh, uh, admiralty law and the law merchant. But even the government rule emerged voluntarily and were not imposed by any international superstate. The object of, of law of war was to limit interstate destruction to the state apparatus itself, therefore preserving the innocent civilian public from the slaughter and devastations of war. The object of the development of neutral rights was to preserve private citizens' international commerce, even with enemy countries, from seizure by one of the warring parties. The overriding aim, then, was to limit the extent of any war, and particularly to limit its destructive impacts on private citizens of the neutral and even the warring countries. The jurist F.J.P. Vale character, uh, uh, charmingly describes such civilized warfare as it briefly flourished uh, in 15th century Italy. The rich uh, burghers and merchants of medieval Italy were too busy making money and enjoying life to undertake the hardships and dangers of soldiering themselves. So they adopted the practice of hiring mercenaries to do their fighting for them and, being thrifty, business-like folk, they dismissed their mercenaries immediately after their services could be dispensed with. Wars were, therefore, fought by armies hired for each campaign. For the first time, soldiering became a reasonable and uh, comparatively harmless profession. The generals of that period maneuvered against each other, often with consummate skill. But when one hand had one advantage, uh, his opponent generally uh, either retreated or surrendered. It was recognized rule that a town could only be sacked if it offered resistance. Immunity could always be purchased by paying a ransom. As one neutral, uh, as one natural co- uh, consequence, no town either resisted, it being obvious that a government too weak to defend its citizens had forfeited their allegiance. Citizens had little to fear from the dangers of war, which were the concern of only professional soldiers. The well-nigh absolute separation of private citizen from the state's wars in the 18th century Europe is highlighted by Neff. Even postal communications were not successfully restricted for long in wartime. Letters circulated without censorship, with a freedom that uh, astonishes the 20th century mind. The subjects of two warring nations talked to each other, if they met, and when they could not meet, corresponded, not as enemies, but as friends. The modern notion hardly existed that subjects of any enemy country are partly accountable for the belligerent acts of their rulers, nor had the warring rulers any firm disposition to stop communications with subjects of the enemy. The old uh, inquisitorial practices of espionage in connection with religious worship and belief were disappearing, and no comparable inquisition in connection with political or economic communication was even contemplated. Passports were originally created to provide safe conduct in time of war. During most of the 18th century, it seldom occurred to Europeans to abandon their travels in a foreign country, which their own was fighting, and trade being increasingly recognized as beneficial to both parties 18th century warfare also counterbalances a considerable amount of trading with the enemy. How far states had transcended rules of civilized warfare in this century needs no elaboration here. In the modern era of total war, combined with the technology of total destruction, 
the very idea of keeping war limited to the state apparatus seems even more quaint and obsolete than the original Constitution of the United States. When states are not at war, agreements are often necessary to keep frictions uh, at a minimum. One doctrine that has gained uh, curiously wide acceptance is the alleged sanctity of treaties. This concept is treated as a counterpart to the sanctity of contract, but a treaty and a genuine contract have nothing in common. A contract uh, transfers, in a precise manner, titles to private property, since a government does not, in any proper sense, own its territorial area, any agreements that it concludes do not confer titles to property. If, for example, Mr. Jones sells or gives his land to Mr. Smith, Jones' heir cannot legitimately descend upon Smith's heir and claim that land is rightfully his. The property title has already been transferred. Old Jones' contract is automatically binding upon Young Jones because the former had already transferred the property. Young Jones, therefore, has no property claim. Young Jones can only claim that which he has inherited from Old Jones, and Old Jones can only bequeath property which he still owns. But if, at a certain date, the government of, say, Ruritania is coerced or even bribed by the government of Waldavia into giving up some of its territory, it is absurd to claim that the government or inhabitants of the two countries are forever barred from a claim uh, to re- uh, reunification of Ratania on the grounds of the sanctity of a treaty. Neither the people nor the land of Northwest Ruritania are owned by either of the two governments. As a cor- uh, corollary, one government can certainly not bind by the dead hand of the past a later government through treaty. A revolutionary government which overthrew the king of Ruritania could similarly hardly be called to account the king's actions or debts, for the government it is not, as is a child, a true heir to the predecessor's property. History is a race between state power and social power. Just as the two basic and mutually exclusive uh, in, in, interrela- in, interrelations between men are peaceful cooperations or coercive exploitation, production or predation, so the history of mankind, particularly in its economic history, may be considered as a contest between these two principles. On the other hand, there is creative productivity, peaceful exchange and cooperation. On the other hand, coercive dictation and predation over those social relations. Albert J. Nock happily termed these contesting forces social power and state power. Social power is man's power over nature. His cooperative transformation of nature's resources and insight into nature's laws for the benefit of all participating individuals. Social power is the power over nature, the living standards achieved by men in mutual exchange. State power, as we have seen, is the coercive and parasitic seizure of this production, a draining of the fruits of society for the benefit of the non-productive, actually anti-productive rulers. While social power is over nature, state power is over man. Through history, man's productive and creative forces have, time and again, carved out new ways of transforming nature for man's benefit. These have been the times where social power has spurted ahead of state power, 
and when the degree of state uh, encroachment over society has considerably lessened. But always, after a greater or smaller time lag, the state has moved into these new areas to cripple and confiscate social power once more. Amidst the flux of expansion or contraction, the state always makes sure that it seizes and retains certain crucial command posts of the economy and society. Among these command posts are a monopoly of violence, a monopoly of ultimate judicial power, the channels of communication and uh, transportation such as post office, roads, rivers, air routes, irrigated water, and education to mold the opinions of its future citizens. In the modern economy, money is the critical command post. If the 17th through the 19th centuries were, in many countries of the West, time of accelerating social power and the corollarily increase in freedom, peace, and material welfare, the 20th century has been primarily an age in which state power has been catching up. With the uh, consequence uh, the consequent reversion to slavery, war, and destruction. This parasitic process of catching up has been almost openly proclaimed by Karl Marx, who conceded that socialism must be established through seizure of capital previously accumulated under capitalism. In this century, the human race faces, once again, the, vir- the virulent reign of of the state, of the state now armed with the fruits of man's creative powers, confiscated and perverted to its own aims. The last few centuries were time when men tried to place constitutional and other limits on the state, only to find that such limits, as with all other attempts, have failed. Of all the numerous forms that government have taken over the centuries, of all the concepts and institutions that have been tried, None has succeeded in keeping the state in check. The problem of the state is inevitably as far from solution as ever. Perhaps new paths and inquiry must be explored. If the successful final solution of the state question is ever to be attained. All right, that's it. That That's it. That's a, a Anatomy of the State by um, Murray Rothbard. Again, if you find this or other material, uh, you can find this and other material like it on Mises.org. That's M-I-S-E-I-S.org. That's where I got this from. Hope you enjoyed this uh, little reading. Whether you agree with Rothbard or not, I hope you got something out of it. Um, even if even if it got you to simply think about something before then, like going back and concluding your idea was ultimately better. Um, that's a win in my book, guys. That's a win in my book. If you thought a little bit, that's a win in my book. Promoting thought and new ideas. Love and passion is our fundamental human experience. If you don't believe in humans being good people as a whole and coming together to help the less fortunate, like you you don't think that people could voluntarily do this, then how would you ever believe that these same humans would voluntarily vote to give their money away to the government to do the exact same thing? Just think about that part of it. If you don't have no faith in these people, then how, how would they vote to voluntarily help other people? And how would you believe that people you give ultimately authority to would somehow be of them good humankind, you know, that good human variety, and not one of the humans you don't have faith in, you know, the selfish ones? Why would, what makes you think that, the, that those people would rise to power? I finish every episode, guys, with um, 
this world is full of good people. If you can't find one, be one. And, and I truly believe that. If you can't find faith in your fellow brothers and sisters standing uh, directly next to you at that grocery store line, you sure as fuck shouldn't have faith in the same people running your government at 10,000% uh, price markup. There's tons of good people out there. 99.9% of people are good. Got to quit letting the government put this in your head that you are, that that it's us, it's it's you against uh, the other citizens. No, it's not. It's us against them. It's our freedoms and rights against them trying to take them from us. You have to understand that, guys. It's very important when you're deciding how much power you want to give these entities. All right, guys, that's it. Um, we'll be back next week with a current events episode, uh, more than likely. Um, again, the, the world is full of good people. If you can't find one, be one. Catch you on the flip side. You have just witnessed the lyrical stylistics of chromatic distortion. Keep